If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking today at a a fairly broad expanse of a passage. We're not going to read it all this morning, but if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Uh, Our our sermon this morning will cover the first uh, through chapter 4. Um, but we're only going to read till the end of chapter 1 this morning just as, uh, as a way of reading. But, uh, you know, as we started 1 Corinthians a couple of weeks ago, uh, we saw this amazing uh, introduction that Paul writes to this church. And he reminds them of the great grace that has been bestowed upon them. He reminds them of the many gifts that have been bestowed upon them. He reminds them of the great love of God that has been given towards them through the cross and through the gospel. And he, he just is thankful for them. And he reminds them of his great love for them. Paul himself and how much he cares about them. Uh, and, and it's such a, a good word that, that we needed and, and certainly that I needed a couple of weeks ago just to be reminded of, of all of those things. And then he turns his attention after that introduction to the passage that we're going to read today. And Paul begins to uh, give instruction to this church that is incredibly troubled. To say that there was a lot going wrong in the church at Corinth would be an understatement. This church had lots of problems, lots of issues. And at the heart of those issues was pride that had led to division. It was a desire to look like the world and to gain things for themselves as individuals rather than to focus on the gospel. And in doing so, they had fractured the church, and really every other issue that we see in the church of Corinth comes from what we're going to see in these first four chapters. Everything else we're going to deal with, whether it is how marriage, what marriage should look like, or whether it is how to deal with spiritual gifts, or whether it is how to love one another and how to be generous to one another, everything else, all the other questions they have, all the other problems they have, stem from this issue of not knowing how to just put aside self. And so this morning, as we approach this, my prayer is is that we would see two things. First, that we would approach this passage in humility, asking for the Lord to show us the pride in our own hearts, to show us the, the idols that we have put up, the things that we have been chasing that are temporary instead of eternal, and that we would desire to confess those and to grab a hold of Him. Secondly, that we would ask the Lord to help us to understand how to run from those things. Because they are temptations every single day of I want me. I want me. And I want what I think is best for me. Rather than waking up every morning and saying, where do I go to the Lord? How do I run to Him? And so... I pray that those would be the two things that we would just dig into this morning. So if you would, stand with me this morning as we read our our passage this morning. Again, we're we're not going to read all four four chapters, but we are going to read from chapter 1, verse 10, to the end of that chapter. 
Paul the Apostle writes here by the hand, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is another name for Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, when we read these words, Lord, we must come very humbly before your throne. Because it is easy for us to forget that we did not save ourselves. It is easy for us to forget that we have done nothing to earn heaven. It is easy for us to forget and to easily stumble back into doing things the way the rest of the world does them. Lord, when we read these passages, when we read these words that You have given us, that You may speak to us, Father, I pray that we would see the things that You see. I pray that we would open up our own lives to You 
that we would identify the things, Lord, that You are pointing out, that we would confess what needs to be confessed, that we would repent and turn from that which needs to be turned away from, and Lord, that we would find great, our great joy and our great peace and our great satisfaction in eternal things. And that as a result, Lord, that you would glorify yourself in this place among us. That you would glorify yourself in this community. Or that the power of the gospel would be known in Vandalia, Missouri. Father, we pray this in the holy, wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we look at this passage and as we explore the, the church in Corinth and what is being said to this church, we need to understand that, that Corinth was again, and we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago, but Corinth was an incredibly wealthy place. It was an incredibly powerful place. This was a, a port, this was a go-between between one half of the Roman Empire and another half of the Roman Empire. And it had built itself up as such. And so the church here, because of the lifestyle and because of the worldliness of the town, Paul had had great difficulty in planting a church in this place. And yet by the grace of God, the gospel truly did take root and the church was planted and there was great and wonderful things that happened because of that. But it didn't take long it didn't take long for the church to fall back into some patterns. For the church to fall back into the way that the world does things. And this is part of the problem of pride. This is part of the problem of pride. Is that when you and I live life, we have inside of us this flesh that consistently and constantly desires to be let loose that consistently and constantly desires to be in control, that consistently and constantly wants to build ourselves up better than the guy next to us. And that pride ultimately leads to problems. In the church, that pride had led them to attach themselves to different individuals. Paul says here that it's reported in this church that there are some that claim Paul, some that acclaim Apollos, some that claim Peter, and others that claim Christ. The idea here is that some of them said, you know what, Paul is the one that founded this church, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow what Paul said to do, and I'm gonna, what Paul said was important, I'm going to make important. And others looked at Paul and they said, you know, he's not, He's not that good a speaker. I mean, look at how hard a time he had planting a church here. And yet this young guy named Apollos walks in, and man, he just has a beautiful way of speaking, and he's just so easy to listen to, and he's so wonderful. And like, so we're going to follow Apollos. And what Apollos says is important, we're going to make it important. And forget this guy Paul, we don't really need him. And others said, well, Peter came and visited us, and Peter and his, his wife were here, and they encouraged us. And I mean, Peter, to quote the young kids, is the OG. He's the original. Like, he, that got nothing from all of you, but that's okay. He is, he is the man, and so we're, we're going to follow Peter because he's been there and done that. I mean, he was the one at Pentecost. He was the one right next to Jesus for all of his ministry. 
We want to be with Peter. And then there's others that were watching all of this and they're watching, you know, all these Paulites and all these Apolloites. We're going to call them that. And then all of these Peterites and they were like, <laughs> you little munchkins. I follow Christ. And it was not an attempt to reform. It was not an attempt to really focus on the gospel. It was, in so many words, a, I'm more holy than you. I follow Jesus Christ. I don't need Paul. I don't need Apollos. I don't need Peter. I got, I got Jesus. You've met people like this, right? We know people like this. that they, they talk about following Christ, but it's not out of humility. It's not out of, oh, Christ has done this for me, and so I'm following Him as my Lord and Savior. It's, I follow Christ, and therefore I'm better than you. Like somehow He has elevated you to perfection immediately. For us today, it would be like somebody that, you know, they, they follow John Piper and another group over here maybe follows Beth Moore and another group over here, they're following John MacArthur or uh, they're following, and then another group, they're following Billy Graham and they're taking all their books and they're putting them up on their shelves and that's what they're reading every day and forget the Bible, we don't really need the Bible, we got Billy Graham right here and don't, we don't need the Bible, we got John Piper right here and you know what, John Piper says this is what's important and so, you know, you people over there that are talking about something Billy Graham finds important, we don't need that, we need what John Piper says important and so forget you and my gifts are better than your gifts and and my programs are better than your programs and we don't and then it just goes on and on and then it gets into petty stuff not that that's not petty enough then it gets into well I can't believe you want that color for the carpet John Piper would never want that color for the carpet we need to do the color that Apollos wants for the carpet well, Peter says we don't even need a building, that we're, we're the church, so let's just tear it all down. And then it goes on and on and on. Like, why would you act that way? Why would you do this? Why would you? And what was happening was they were causing division by association. They were causing division by association. Now they're beginning to fracture and to pull apart and to place importance on values because that's what an individual said was important, not because of the Word of God. And then they begin to make their own rules and their own, their own theology and their own, out of their own wisdom and out of their own thought process. And the church just begins to fracture a little bit more. And they begin to jockey. They begin to jockey for position. If I can get this, if I can be chair of this committee, if I can be this Sunday school teacher for this class, if I can, if I can just maneuver my way just a little bit higher up the chain, and bring myself more attention to prove that my way is right. That's what was going on in this church. And, and unfortunately, what was happening was this pride and this arrogance was destroying the church. This is what Paul is talking about in verse 4. We often take this verse, these verses out of context. But chapter 4, verse 16 he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys the temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 
We often take those verses out of the context of chapter 4 and we talk about how it's our bodies. And there's some truth to that. The Spirit does dwell within us and we should treat our bodies with respect as things that have been created by God. But what he is talking about there is not the physical body. What he's talking about there is the church. That word you there is plural. It means you all. Do you, the church, not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you, the church? If anyone destroys God's temple, the church, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are holy. He's saying these divisions and this pride that is welled up in you and the fractures that are happening and the division that's happening, that is destruction of God's people. It's destruction of God's dwelling place with His people. And that God will not stand idly by and allow that to happen. That there is consequence for that. And so Paul cries out to this church. He is begging this church. Stop it. Stop it. What you are doing is, going, is leading to the fracturing and the and to the downfall of the church. And it is staining the gospel in the eyes of those who are watching. He addresses some of this danger at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? I read that this week. Really, I read it last week, but I read that, that passage, and I read that last statement. Are you not merely being human? And that just stuck with me. Because as a sinful person, I read that and I'm like, well, yeah, I'm being human. Like, look at me. I'm human. This is who I am. And so it shouldn't be surprising that I act human. And I, began, I became kind of defensive in that moment. What do you mean, Paul, you're acting human? Of course we're acting human. But Paul's underlining point there, his, what he's getting at is that you and I, when we gave our life to Jesus Christ, we put to get death the human side. We're called to be more than that. Jesus Christ, when he's speaking with Nicodemus, he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. The idea being there that you become a new creation. You become a new creature and throughout the New Testament, throughout Paul's writings, what you see over and over again is the need for us to put to get death the flesh, for us to put to death the human side of us, and to take on the Spirit as He dwells inside of us. To look more and more like Christ and less and less like humans. Paul's saying to this church, when you begin to, 
to identify with individuals and to try to chase after who you think is the most powerful leader or when you chase after what you think is the most powerful idea or when you begin to jockey for power within the church to the to the detriment of all your brothers and sisters and you begin to divide the church, you just look like the world. And that is not what we're called to look like. He begins to unfold this in chapter 2. He tells us... Stepping back a little bit, he begins to unfold what the world looks like, really, in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He begins to say, this is what the world looks like. This is what the world values. If you're going to be human, then this is what it's going to be. And this is the description of really what the church had become. First, they value, the world values the speaker over the message. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony or I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom for I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says here he, he's calling attention to the fact that the world expects one thing. The world values the speaker. They want the entertainment value. In Paul's time what would happen is there would be a speaker and he would roll into town and he would have this great production. And he would speak with eloquent words. He would speak with a fluidity. He would speak with great stories and, and great uh, analogies. And he would just have the whole presentation. The lights, the flashing, the smoke, the cameras, everything. Okay, maybe not the cameras, but you get my point. And people would sit and they would listen and they would just be enamored with him. They would just... They would just love the presentation and the glitz and the glamour. Never mind what the message was. Never mind what the message was. As long as they were entertained, that was what was important. And the same is true for us today. Right? We love to be entertained. We love to, to shut our brains off and just enjoy something no matter what the message is. And I'm, I'm chief among sinners here. I like TV. I like entertainment. And I have to, I have to constantly kind of ask myself, eh, is this, what, what's the message here? Am I being distracted by the glitz and the glamour? Am I being distracted by the entertainment value of this? And I'm allowing things to soak into my heart and my brain that don't need to be there. Am I valuing the short-term pleasure over the eternal benefit? And so we do the same thing. We value the speaker more than the message. We value the present. Looking like the world also means valuing the present over valuing the eternal. In chapter 2, going back to that, look in verse 6, it says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not the wisdom of this age or the ruler's of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our, for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul says, as, as humans, when we look like humans, when we act like humans, we run for the present we, put, we, we look at the problems of the present and we freak out over them. We look at 
the present situation and we try to we try to just we hone in on just that thing we put blinders on for the world we look at the present powers that be the present government that's in charge and we look to them to solve our problems this is the worldly response that the government is going to be the one that figures things out and this has been true since the beginning of time paul says these things pass away Why are you looking to government to solve your problem? Why are you looking to society to solve your problem? Those things pass away. Cultures pass away. Leaders pass away. All of those things are temporary. Rather, focus on the wisdom of God that He has given you that's eternal. And yet so often we would rather take things into our own hands and take the things that that we feel comfortable with and pursue them. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says that we are like children of the street who grew up in mud pies. And all we've ever known is our mud hole. And we, we put together our mud pies and we play with them and we bake them on the street and they become our toys. And, and, that, and we're just covered in the filth of the street. And then someone comes along and in, in great kindness they extend an invitation to go to the beach and the cleanness and the, and the beauty of that place. And they say, come, come with me. We're going to go to the beach. But we look and in response we say, no, I'm happy with my mud pies. And we give up the greatness for what is filth. We do, the same, we do this all the time. When I was a kid... Um, My mom's favorite thing, one of her favorite things to say to me, there were many, but one of my mom's favorite things to say to me was, "You, when you get money, it burns a hole in your pocket. Did your mom ever say that to you? It just meant that any time I got, I mean, even a nickel, it was like, how can I spend this? How How can I go and buy this? For me, forever, many of you may not remember this, but there, for a quarter, you could do one of the little turn machines and you get one of those little plastic helmets and you could put the sticker of the, the football team and like, man, I was obsessed with trying to collect all those. And at the time, the Cowboys were like the greatest team ever and so like, like, the, you know, like the holy grail for, for me was to try to get a Dallas Cowboys sticker. Not because I liked the Cowboys, but that was just the one I didn't have. I had like 25 Washington Redskins, um, and, but I, I, I just couldn't get a Dallas one or Tampa Bay Buccaneers like, and it was the old old orange, ugly orange one, and I really want, and man, every time I got a little bit of money, it was like, mom, can you break this into quarters so I can run to Walmart, so I can turn the machine, so I can get these little helmets, and then, you know, dad inevitably, and his cruelness would step on them, it wasn't because I left them out, it was just because dad didn't like them, but, okay, maybe not, but anyway, he would step on them, and they would be gone, and by the time I got to, you know, sixth grade at the minimum, by the time I got to sixth grade, I, I don't even know where those things went to. I have no clue. But man, at the time, it was like, this is what's important, and th- these things are going to be important. for. And when I have the full collection, my life is going to be complete. And man, I had a buddy of mine who had the Dallas Cowboys helmet, and never in my life have I wanted to steal something so bad. Like I, every time I would go over his house and we would play, it's like, man, i got to have that. And my world was encompassed with just... This temporary thing. And it's a silly example. But we do it all the time. We pursue 
more money, we pursue a better house, we pursue a better car, we pursue our hobbies and our gifts to unhealthy portions, and we just have this innate desire to want more, and we keep chasing things, but what we find at the end of it all is that everything is temporary. Paul says that's looking like the world. But that's what this church was doing. They were desiring temporary power, temporary glory, temporary wealth that they may, instead of chasing after eternal things. Lastly, looking like the world, he talks about valuing power over weakness. Go back really fast. Uh, We're we're not going to spend a ton of time on this point, but go back to chapter 1. Back up just a little bit with me. It says in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Paul says if if you want to look like the world, you need to value the speaker over the message. Go for the entertainment value. If you want to look like the world, then you need to value the present over the eternal. And if you want to look like the world, you look for power over weakness. The Jews valued power in what could you do for me lately? What could you do for me lately? It wasn't enough that Jesus had fed 5,000. It wasn't enough that he had healed. It was what could you do for me right now? Give me a miracle. Give me something that benefits me. If you can prove your power through that, then I will believe. Jesus' response to that, by the way, is what? He says, you will only have the sign of Jonah. Alluding to the fact that Jesus himself would die and be buried for three days and then come back to life. His point was this. I'm going to give you the best miracle you've ever seen, and you're still not going to believe it. Because this isn't about power in the sense that you think of it. This isn't about benefit for temporary purposes. We're talking about eternal things here. And so the crucifix, though it was the miracle and the resurrection, though that was a miracle, they missed it. The Greeks were a little different. The Greeks weren't worried necessarily about power in the the way the Jews were. The Greeks were worried about proving that they were smarter than everybody else. They wanted wisdom. They wanted knowledge. Maybe, maybe you knew this kid in school, and if you don't, did, don't know this kid in school, it was because you were this kid in school, just pointing this out. But the kid that just wanted to read the encyclopedia just so he could be the one that had the answer every time there was a question, like, they, they, he was the one that, or she was the one that any time the teacher asked a question, like, their hand shot up, and they were the one answering, and, and the teacher got tired of them being the one answered, so they would be like, George, put your hand down. Like, that kid? That's what the Greeks were. The Greeks just wanted to show that they knew more than you knew. And so they, when they got into a debate, they would talk to you and they would want to logically reason out everything in life. And if you couldn't keep up, then you weren't on their level. And can you imagine preaching the cross into that? You preach crucifixion. This guy came, he lived a perfect life. God came down in the flesh, lived a perfect life, and then he voluntarily gave up his life for you and me. And he died. And he rose again. That doesn't compute to a world that looks for logic. And it certainly doesn't give you a one-up on anybody. 
And so the Greeks dismissed it. After all, it says that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and, a fo- and folly to the Gentiles. But the world looks for power. What can you do for me lately? This is why the prosperity gospel has so much appeal. Across the world, the prosperity gospel has so much appeal because it's a what can you do for me now faith. Brothers and sisters, we don't have a what can you do for me now faith. That may surprise you. It doesn't doesn't mean that God doesn't bless us at times in this life. Certainly he does. But you know what Christ talks about more than anything in the gospel? 